Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Hubert Pallon, the CEO of Product Board. So Product Board is a product management tool that helps teams understand what users need, prioritize what to build next, and earn buy-in for their plans. Hubert and I talked about delight and functionality. If you think about it, right, every product serves two different needs, your functional and your emotional needs. Every product is created based on that functional need, and it's usually utilitarian. You can think about it as like a car that gets you from point A to point B. The utilitarian part, you know, it solves your problem. But the other part is, how do you feel while performing the job? How do you feel while using that product? When you design products, I think you should try to incorporate more than just the utilitarian functionality. And if you do that, does it lead to more value for your company? I think so. And Hubert agrees. He believes that a heavy investment into delight brings about a sustainable differentiation for your product, and it's a differentiation that lasts for the long term. So this got me to thinking, well, it got me to thinking about cars, right? Every car has a functional use. It takes you to your destination. But let's talk about Tesla. So everyone I've met with a Tesla raves about it, constantly talks about how delightful the car experience is. This investment in delight seems to pay off in customer advocates for Tesla and Tesla's brand loyalty. So let me know your thoughts on delight and functionality. You can reach me at ebodic at pendo.io or ebodic on Twitter. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with the CEO of Product Board. Welcome. Can you kick this off by giving us a little overview of yourself and your background? Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. My name is Hubert Palan. I'm the founder and CEO of Product Board. Um, product Board is a product management system that helps product teams get the, get the right products to market faster. And the way we do it is that we make sure that all the makers of the product, you know, product managers, designers, engineers, are really aligned on what is the vision for the product and hopefully substantiated you know, by deep insights of what is it that people need. Uh, that they have clarity of product strategy, and then uh, that they succeed you know, with coherent execution, focus execution, get the product to, to the market. So that's, uh, that's what we do. I'm, um, you know, I'm originally from Prague, the Czech Republic. I was a VP product management before at a company called Good Data, business intelligence platform. We lived here in San Francisco for 12 years, but have been going between Europe and, and San Francisco because a big part of our team is in Prague, where I'm from originally. So tell me about the transition from VP of product to good data to being founder of product board. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, look, so I, you know, I'm a product manager. That's, I love working on products, creating new things. And, uh, you know, in my, in my, at the core who I am is I'm this type of person. I just want every product, every service to be amazing and perfect and delightful. And it drives me nuts when things are not that way. You know, you take just like a cup in your hand and it's sharp and, you know, maybe it looks good, but you can really use it, right? Or you stand in the line at a supermarket and, you know, the principle of having, you know, one line and one, one queue and multiple servers, you know, 
know, as, as a more optimal way is not applied and just, so I'm the type of person. And then as a, as a product manager, I've been, I've just been hoping to have a system that would help me do my job better. And, uh, you know, I ran product management team and you know, it was a company of 300 people and I didn't have a system. I had, uh, you know, spreadsheets, I had uh, PowerPoints and I, and I couldn't kind of make a sense of what is it that the market needs in kind of like a, you know, pattern recognition way. And so I started working on product board and then, you know, left obviously good data and then. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, as a product person, I'm super excited about just the breadth of software you know, that's come out for product managers over the past, you know, five years, whether it's product board or Pendo, you know, we're really at a good age where instead of as product managers, we don't have to use like tools that are built for other people or the ubiquitous spreadsheet that solves every problem. Right. So it's like, it's becoming golden age of product management. Are we kind of getting there? I guess. Look, I think that, you know, historically product management has been actually done in a very good way in the traditional fast-moving consumer good companies, for example. Oh, I think yeah. that the, the discipline has been there. It somehow almost feels like we've forgotten it in the digital era where a lot of the decision-making has been done from the engineering kind of mindset. And like, oh, you know, you fall in love with the technology and there's really no problem that it solves, but, you know, it's kind of okay. So I feel like... In the digital world, there's the lack of the empathy and understanding of the customer needs, which is something that if you're a brand manager for Pampers or, you know, for Ragu sauce, like that's something that was always core to the role. In the digital world, the challenge is that you kind of need to do both. You need to have the empathy for the customer and understanding of the market, as well as understanding of the technology and how to apply, how to apply to solve it. And that's hard because obviously, you know, we have... The new generation is in a better advantage because they understand technology more, but you know, it takes time. So, yeah. So you've given a talk before on this concept of product excellence. Can you talk to me about these five stages of product excellence? Yeah, it, it's kind of, um, you know, it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning. Uh, I really see, you know, there's a best practice how to make products in the sense what is the process? You know, just like there's a best practice in how to define sales process and you know, stages in the pipeline, or there's practices with agile engineering development, right? There's best practices in all the different functional areas. And I really see a set of best practices that you can apply, and if you follow them, the resulting product is going to be superior. And so I coined this term product excellence as a way of describing this set of best practices and the framework or, you know, the underlying methodology. And it's really about three pillars. It's about making sure that the vision is sound, that, you know, what you want to build is really grounded in good, deep understanding of user needs. Because if the vision, if, you know, if what you want to build is the wrong thing, people don't have a need for it, you know, maybe the market is too small. That's obviously you're going to fail right there. Then the second pillar is the clarity of strategy, because confusing vision, long-term vision with what is it that you're going to do immediately as the next step is, you know, it's a big mistake and you know, we can talk more about that. And then, you know, if even if you have the vision and even if you have the clarity of the product strategy, you might still not execute properly because you're not organized properly because you don't have alignment with the rest of the company because there's not, you know, tight enough feedback loop with what you're building and how is it, is it really aligned with the vision and, you know, is the strategy right and so on. So that's, that's the third pillar. 
And I see when I look at the market, when I look at how companies kind of, you know, if, if you were to score them, right, how on these three pillars, where they are, there are different levels because on the lowest level, it's like everything is kind of based on gut and like, hey, I know what to build. I, I don't really have a solid strategy. It's everything is just based on intuition and, you know, ima- picture like, you know, kind of despotic, uh, you know, naive founder of a company who's just like, oh, this is what we're doing. I don't need to talk to customers. I've been in this, you know, space long enough and I know everything and just like do this, right? And then, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in these five stages, I basically describe this kind of model where companies get better in terms of understanding of the insights and the needs and they put processes in place and they organize themselves and then they create an environment where this is shared. So ultimately on the highest level, you achieve this point that I call the point of you know product excellence, that's why it's called product excellence, where the vision, the strategy and the execution is not only clearly defined and grounded in good understanding of the market, but also is shared with the whole company, with the whole team, so that everybody is marching, you know, the, the right direction and it's you have buy-in of everyone and it's you know it's a sport. It's 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 a team sport, right? Like you know, you can't have just individual genius making all the decisions. It's like inevitably throughout the process of creating products, every people and every person throughout the process contributes to improving or or harming, you know, the product, right? It's product managers, designers, engineers, product marketers, salespeople, support people, everybody's kinda of, part of it and the better they understand all these pieces the better they understand the needs and you know what the strategy is the better resulting product you know they can offer and, and, and create so that's kind of you know going from the zero to five and obviously you know we have we have more details on it and we blog about it like we've talked about it but it's just like the, the maturity of you know think of it as like if you're uh, have you seen this movie, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Yes, yes. So this is, it's about this like excellent, it's not like a point. It's not like, oh, we're, you know, we're excellent. It's not like that the product is excellent. No, it's it's how you operate, how you're organized, you know, how are you striving towards continuously improving and getting better? And are you, you know, perceptive to needs and, you know, all, so it's it's the process, it's the path, you know, are you on the path to, to excellence? It's kind of a mindset, you know. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm just like, you know. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm I like that. I love that stuff. And I, I feel like there's always an improvements that can be made, right? I mean, because not only is it a process, but it's not like you reach a point and you're like, we're done. You know, we're, we're there. There's always parts that you can make better. There's always outside environmental factors that affect things that, you know, cause you to have to do things better or do things in a new way. So it, it's a... Uh, you know, similar to, I'm sure, in the sushi environment, there's dynamics in the environment that mean that you're constantly evolving your process or doing things in a slightly different way, even if the mainstay of everything's the same. So, yeah, yeah. So where where do you think uh, an average technology software company sits on that zero to five scale? You know, it's like two to three, yeah. unfortunately. You know, I mean, think of, think of it as, you know, the five, imagine like a Star Trek team. You know, it's not, you know... It's not individual superheroes. It's a team that's really a tight unit, right? And so that's very rare. Most companies are kind of, okay, we do some research and we have some strategy defined, but it's very simplistic. It's more like, hey, this is what we're building next. You know, there is some simple process around like communicating the roadmap, but people struggle to really, you know, not only put the, you know, more sophisticated processes in place, but then also... You know, you might, you might buy into like objective OKR framework and you might understand the principle, right? And it's like, okay, I need to define objectives and I need to define key results. 
but it's still far from actually defining the right objectives and you need to have the discipline, you need to have the experience, you need to, you know, and so, you know, again, this is, you know, on the podcast level, I can, it's difficult to kind of like describe in details uh, the maturity. But what I, what, I, what I will say is that we definitely see more and more companies kind of realizing that there is a best practice way how to make products. And th- so that's what, you, you know, agile to lean startup and kind of like, hey, get out of the building, make sure that you're informed, you know, so that, that's the trend, you know, the rise of chief product officer and, you know, chief digital officer, or, you know, digital transformation or whatever, like people are realizing that there is, there is a, there's a way how to increase the success or like increase the chances of, of making, you know, better product. And so that's interesting to me, you know, so obviously like you have these, you know, these stages, but the interesting is the trend and that, you know, there's hunger for it. So, so if you're, the tools is just like, that's, that's like the last piece. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to start with the people in the process, yeah. right? I mean, not to beat a dead horse there, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, you start with people in process. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you're, uh, if you're talking to, and you probably are right now, talking to an aspiring or a young CPO or head of product, and he's thinking, you know, Hubert's right, you know, I need to do some of this stuff. I need to learn about this. I need to up-level my org from, you know, the two to the four or five. Where would you point him to? Like, what's some resources, like things you've read? What would you say, these are some of the most important things you can do to kind of up-level your organization? Yeah, I mean, you can go to our website. We have a block, and you know, then there's like we, we we describe the methodology and the stages. But I think you know, we, again, this, this might be obvious, but you know, you need to make sure that you have buy-in from other people, and that you explain, and that you tell the stories, and you look at the companies that are different in the way they listen for insights, in the way that really, you know, the information flow freely into the product decision makers, right? And that it is kind of you're kind of designing the whole organization and yeah, you need to, you need to, first you need to explain to people like, Hey, this is how the greatness can look like. And then hopefully inspire people. And then, you know, obviously your job is going to be okay. Now I'm going to, this is going to be the first step and the next step and so on. And so on. it's just like building products. It's the same thing, right? Like so who do you point to? I like, can say, Oh, this is a great example of a company that does this really well that maybe a lot of the listeners know. I mean, there, there's a there's a variety of companies. Uh, Spotify is an interesting example of how they're organized, how they open uh, to like, collaborating, cross collaborating, and you know, there's this famous set of videos and you know how they organize. It's it's very like engineering driven, but uh, you know the teams own different parts of the product, not based on components and based on architecture, but based on the use cases and the needs. So you have like different browsing, you know, team versus different like play versus, you know, discovery and so on. There's um, even, even sometimes this is interesting because Apple is frequently given an example of company where oh, it's so secretive and then there's, you know, very little kind of connecting with the market or the user testing and so on. And that's, that's not, that's not the case. You know, the company is secretive in the sense that if you're working on a new product, like you don't want everybody else to understand what's going on, but the team that's working on it is actually very tight and uh, they do a lot of testing, a lot of research, a lot of, you know, communication and the, the, the product or they have more project managers and designers are in very, very tight communication. So it is actually a good example of um, like product management culture, you know, like the, that, that excellence there. There's a lot of startups 
that are, you know, they have the luxury of, hey, this is a green field and we're going to do it right. We're, we're going to hire the right people. We're going to have the culture transparent from, from you know, the get-go. There's more, I can, you know, we have more case studies uh, for our customers. We have 1,900 customers, right, uh, using Pregboard and they buy into this, this vision. Awesome. So talk to me a little bit about that product experience about across departments, right? You, you mentioned that now. You know, when you're working with other departments, product teams often, you know, run into friction. How do you give them advice on overcoming that? The key thing is what I already mentioned, that this is a team sport. And so if you have a friction in the company, if, if, if teams are fighting, like there's probably, there, there's a root cause. And that's probably that there's a lack of alignment of what are we doing and most importantly why and so i always tell teams hey make sure that you really understand kind of the the triangle of who is the customer like who are the people which is really the market that you're ser- serving what is the problem that you're going after and then what's the product or the features that you're gonna deliver and you need to have alignment across all the departments. It can be just in the heads of the product managers or you know designers. Like everybody else at the company needs to have clarity. Hey, this is how we see the market. This is how it's segmented in terms of the descriptive characteristics and you know kind of the traditional market segmentation. But then the problem definition, the you know use cases, needs, jobs to be done, uh, whatever you want to call it, pick your favorite terminology and, and framework. But again, that needs to be shared. It needs to be understood that this is the structure of the problems of the use cases that we see in the market. And then you need to have a conversation with everyone. Look, we're going after this particular customer segment that has this set of problems or needs, and we're solving it with this set of features. And then suddenly the conversation that you can have with the sales or customer success colleagues change because... It's not about, hey, I have this uh, customer who really needs this feature, why can't we deliver it? It changes the, the conversation to, hey, here's a request and let's look at it for whom it is and what problems it's solving and have the conversation whether, whether it is aligned with what is it that we're working on right now, whether it's, I mean, you know, longer term aligned with our vision, first of all, but even shorter term, is it aligned with the immediate next step? And the problem is that typically companies don't have the clarity and so they can't have the conversation and create this frustration like, oh, we're not building the right things because nobody actually talked about what is it that we're not building or, you know, why we're, we're what we're going to build next. And so for the, you know, chief rock officer or whoever, <laughs> do a workshop and just, you know, talk about it and talk separately about how do we see the market segmented descriptively, right? You know, descriptors that, you know, size of a company, industry, profiles, you know, something like that. But then behaviorally, and try to get as much alignment on it. And then constantly when there's a new request or you know, new feature idea or you know, new, new pain points, make sure that you always put it into the same, same framework and that you ask these questions so that you know, all of these are answers. Okay, it's a feature idea, great, but does it have a problem or for who? Yeah, and I think that, that leads into my next thought, which is you know, product managers get a lot of feedback from a lot of different sources, variety as far as quality too. Can you explain what's the best way to prioritize all the feedback and what bad feedback looks like? <laughs> yeah, it's feedback and research and market signals and what other people that are solving similar problems are doing. Like all these are insights into really you, you're trying to understand the segmentation and the needs of, of the market, right? Because then you can make the right decisions. And so the 
way to treat the feedback is just make sure that it finds its way to the people that are responsible for the, you know, depends how you're organized, right? Like sometimes it's around products, sometimes it is about around the use cases. But make sure that it's a continuous listening, that, that there's a process that continuously you listen and that you look for the insights that you, um, yeah, it, it's like the senses of a human body, right? That like there's no blockage, that, like your eyes, ears and smells and, you know, touch and so on, that it gets to the, the brain of the, the product organization. And, you know, do it through systems, like listen, read, support tickets, you know, do, do it via, like, obviously, one-on-one user, user research, uh, you know, all that. And then, you know, start with processes and then eventually put systems in place that just allow you to do it at scale. Because, you know, if you do it in spreadsheets, if you do it in Evernote, if you do it in, you know, or like in your, your guys' case with Bento, right, like on the, on the engagement side, the data analytics, like product engagement analytics, you just need a system that helps you with that because there's just, you know, too much, right? And you need to look for patterns, you need to cluster it. Yeah, I'm not sure that I answered the question. No, I think that was a great answer to the question, you know, and <laughs> I had a, a thought here about, you know, we see, we've all seen posters like the customer is always right. And we we're just talking about, you know, feedback from a variety of different sources and made me think, is the, is the customer always right? The customer's always right in the sense that if you listen well for the problems, you will, un- like, you know, you will understand the customer. The customer is not always right in the sense that, like, if they ask you for a specific solution, if they ask you for a specific feature, they might not be right in that. That's your job to figure out what the right solution is. So that, I mean, that's a confusion that, you know, oh yeah, if I, if I just ask people what they want, but that's, you're not asking, you're, you're asking what they want, not in terms of the solution, but in terms of what is it that they're trying to get done. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's an important thing to think about for product managers is, you know, passion about the problem, like understanding the customer's problem, not looking for the customer to solve his own problem and building it for him. Yeah. But and, being and, passionate about the problem yeah. and understanding that. Yeah, and it's and it obviously the, the way bigger difficulty is in that it's not just the one individual that you talk to, but you need to go on the level of segmentation. And your job is to make sure that there's enough of the people that, that have the same need. And that's hard. Like, that's hard because that, that means that, you know, you obviously need to talk to many people. You need to have empathy. You need to, uh, yeah, you need to be able to evaluate the size of the opportunity. And it's kind of like a typical thing that, you know, crazy inventors, they come up with like, like a thing that nobody else needs because they feel like they need it or maybe maybe they really need it but they're the only person in the world who has a need for you know whatever crazy idea and and that's that step is hard it's it's hard enough to understand yourself and now you know you're trying to understand the whole population of the, of the market there and, and the segment and then you want to share this understanding with everybody else on the team and hopefully the whole company <laughs> so just like you know the difficulty gets order of magnitude higher every step along the way so one of the metrics we use as product managers is net promoter score, right? And there's a lot of different opinions on NPS. You know, do you think product managers should rely on NPS and how do they make it more valuable to them? Look, every input that kind of that helps you measure or understand how satisfied people are with the product or service you're offer, offering is valuable and important. So I I'm I am not I'm like a, you know, religious, I, I, I don't have like a specific, you know, I'm not going to tell you that NPS is right or wrong. Like it, I think it's a good tool in your toolkit and 
it can help you inform, okay, you know, how, how likely are people to recommend products, you know, friend or colleague. And it is an indicator, but it's not, it's not something that you can just rely on it because the, the thing is that in aggregate, it just the aggregate and the average hides a lot of what's happening inside, right? Because the, the customers might differ at a segment, like, you know, who are they, like what? If you ask them, are you likely to recommend the product, but for what job? For what, what you know, that's, it's, it's just much more nuanced. Yeah. And so it's very easy to fall for like, oh yeah, we have high NPS. But it's like, yeah, but it's actually not, you know, may, maybe it's not aligned with your vision. Like you're actually trying to do something else, you know, and people are using the product differently. And, and yeah, I, I mean, I personally think NPS becomes a lot more valuable the more you segment, uh, whether it's customer segments or actually functionally segment, like, you know, would you recommend our lead scoring to your colleague, right? Uh, and how much you track that, you know, overlay that with usage so that you can get like, oh, people use lead scoring are actually huge fans of our product and people who use this functionality are not. I mean, that's super valuable as opposed to aggregating that data together and getting like an average score because you have half your users who use a lot of this and aren't happy and half your users will love you because of this, you know, that's part of their job role. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you touched on a lot of that where segmentation and overlay of NPS on top of other data can be super informative for product managers, but yeah. by itself, maybe a little less so. So you've written about two functionalities a product should have, either value or delight and complexity. Can you explain what you, you mean by that? Yeah, so two, two things are in there. Like, you know, value and complexity, it's, it's a framework that's used uh, in terms of assessing what, you, what you're prioritizing, how valuable it is, hopefully in the light or in the context of very clearly defined objective and as narrowly as possible, and then evaluating complexity in terms of, okay, is it feasible for us to build? You know, do we have enough time, right? Like you don't have unlimited time. The other part of like, you know, functionality versus delight. So that's, that's something that I'm very passionate about because products fundamentally solve two groups of needs. It's functional needs and then emotional needs. And so a product can be, has, you know, functions that are purely utilitarian, you know, can you drill a hole in, in the wall uh, with, you know, the drill? But then the other part is how you feel while performing that job, while performing that utility. And so it is kind of like the art and science, right? Like the best products are those that satisfy both of these needs. It's you get the job done in terms of utility, but it also sparks this joy and delight while you're doing it. And you can kind of argue again that there's, you know, room for products that are utilitarian because like there's a segment of customers that don't care about the delight as much, which is kind of if you look at, you know, Apple products versus Google products, it's like Apple is so much better on the delight aspect. Like it's so much more important to the product teams there to make sure that they satisfy the emotional needs and you know they, they, they think about it much much more in their like product design process and so I just love when uh, you know you, you use a product or service and it is this like oh my god the sense of wonder uh, the sense of unexpected delight and joy and I try you know in, in our product right it's a very important part of the experience is how can you how can you tap into the positive emotions and yeah and create this sense of wonder you know wonderful if you say something's wonderful it's like full of wonder 
And if you look cars is a great example of that like when I talk to people who own a Tesla, I mean obviously get some to point A from point A to B and that's like the functionality of a car. At the same time when they talk about their Tesla, you can see joy on their face like in, in the experience versus someone who maybe has a car that it works, it gets them where they need to go from home to work and back and forth, but there's no joy about the process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just, you know, it it's hard, but, you know, the delight part is hard. Um, but it's also, it's a long-term competitive advantage that, you know, it's sustainable. Because delight is not, there's always more delight can be created. Whereas the functional, the, you know, utilitarian dimensions of a product, you can reach that it's good, the point of good enough. Like, you know, you don't need... 100 terabytes in your computer anymore like you know everything is in, in, the, in the cloud right the, the, the typical kind of jobs to be like um, the, the typical um, disruption theory is okay you know hard drive story and how you know at some point or like car right like if it if it drove 500 miles per hour like you have no use for it it's like you know, it diminishes but the delight is always you can always be more delightful because the sense of wonder changes because what is wonderful for you today is not going to be wonderful wonderful for you tomorrow because you kind of get used to it and the sense of surprise and, and wonder disappears. And so that's interesting for companies to realize that and the more you think about it, the more you invest into your products, the more differentiated and the more longer term competitive, you know, sustainable competitive differentiation you can create. But that requires having this in the culture of the company, in the DNA, like everybody needs to be bought into it because... You know, you build the functional aspect of the feature and, you know, then it takes 80% more time to make it really pop and like really delightful, right? So it's expensive. It's expensive. I mean, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp, like, you know, make fewer features, but make them really great. Then just like, you know, keep piling stuff into it. Which, by the way, this is a, a, another interesting thing is, that, you know, in the digital world, it's more difficult than in the traditional, I mentioned the fast-moving consumer goods, or like in the hardware world, you have more constraints, right? Like you can always put, the, the joke is, you know, the poorly designed remote control for it to you, like how many buttons there are. But even that, you know, there's a limit, like you can't just put thousands of them. Right? Yeah, you can't put a thousand buttons on a remote because exactly. it's just not, I mean, it's a door at that But point. your software product, sure. You can always put another tab, another link somewhere else, right? It's like, it's an endless virtual space. And that, that makes it harder because that suddenly you need to have the discipline to say, no, this is not what we're building, right? Like this use case is like, we're not gonna, we're gonna make sure that we're gonna make something really superior in a you know, narrow area that you decide is your strategy is, is your segment. And you need to be very careful and deliberate like when you branch out and when you start satisfying more of the needs or use cases or when you start going after more of the customer segments. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a balance because you add, when you add more functionality, you generally add more user interface complexity too. So not only can it potentially be overwhelming from a standpoint of just not knowing what's there, but how to actually accomplish, you know, what you want to accomplish can become overwhelming. Yeah, and so that's, that's advantage of software, right? Because in, in the ideal world, you basically, you know what is it, what is the need, what is the use case that the user is trying to get done, and you kind of hide the stuff that they don't need. But then, of course, you might end up with a solution like the, remember the old Excel, Microsoft Office Excel ribbon, where 
it, it, it was like, you know, the features would show up and based on how you use them, it would, you know, get, get customized. But <laughs> it's like, then it just, it was happening and then it, it creates confusion because sometimes it was there, wait, wait, it was there. And then because he used it, then it popped up and it's just like, you know, it creates confusion. So yeah, I mean, I think there's something there, but it was definitely an idea before it's time. And, yeah. you know, a, a lot the implementation, maybe we weren't quite ready for it. Uh, and the technology to deliver it wasn't quite there. I think with machine learning, it'll be kind of interesting to how interfaces can be personalized or adapted to what you're currently doing. I think there's a lot of power there if we can get it right. I worry about like, you know, I was, I was using an airline app where a feature I needed actually disappeared when I needed it. It was like, wasn't there. I couldn't click on it anymore. I was like, yeah. that's bad. But, and, 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 but the intent was interesting. Yeah, but you also, I mean, you're kind of hitting limits of how our human brain works, right? And the fact that we live in a three-dimensional space and we just remember where things are, mm -hmm. right? And that's how we like that's how we get oriented, right? And like you know, the spatial like location and like where things are, you know, in, in the virtual world. That's and that and that's a challenge for design of user interfaces, right? Because yeah, I I frequently ask like our design team, it's like, hey, what's the real-world analogy? that you can tap into, right? Like with this feature, you know, is it like a, you know, paper, my desk and I have papers and I, and I flip pages in the book or, you know, do I rearrange them on my desk, right? Or like post-it notes, you know, if I take an entity and I put it somewhere, like can I have this physical model that I can imagine as a user that I'm just used to because I'm human? And I see frequently teams kind of like breaking these, you know, associations that you have from the physical world in the digital products. And and entities change forms and shapes and location and you know, and you just like get lost in it, right? Yeah, no, I, I it's interesting you mentioned that. I started thinking about like, do you have an iPhone? Yeah. Yeah. So it, and there's probably a lot of apps on it. Sure. Imagine if someone reorganized where those apps were every day and how like much time you would lose, right? Just because you're used to where things spatially sit. Uh just like if someone moved doors in your house or how you navigated around your house, it would like, it would just crush your day. So there's definitely something there that we have to be careful as product builders and designers, you know, how much we adapt and interface to someone's needs and, and how much that changes how they're already like their power of habit. Yeah. So. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned was jobs to be done. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, why it's an important model for product companies. Yeah, look, uh, jobs to be done is a is a framework that helps product makers focus on the needs of the users and on the problems rather than the actual solutions. So the job is what is it that you're trying to get done, and it's a nice analogy, and you know the phrasing of the jobs to be done is you know people can easily imagine it. It's not really different from the other frameworks like user centered design or you know goal or user user goal oriented design or uh, you know use cases or user needs it's fundamentally if you go to the 1980s and you read like you know old research papers on the house of quality and uh, it, it's like these these concepts have been around for a very long time because it's just a framework that makes sure that again that you don't fall in love with the with the, with the solution and you focus on the problem it's a useful kind of a way of explaining to other people who are not deep into, you know, all, all the other methodologies and framework that I just described, right? I know, sorry, this might be a little too theoretical, 
but the, the bottom of it is to make sure that you always clearly define what is the problem that you're trying to get done. And when you do user research, when you, as you said, you know, the customer's always right. When it comes to the job, like, you know, they tell you, hey, this is what I'm trying to get done. And so whatever framework, whatever terminology you establish, whether it's jobs to be done, whether it's uh, what are the use cases, what are the user flows, what are the user scenarios, like pick your favorite methodology, but make sure that everybody on your team and at the company, that there is a shared taxonomy, that everybody understands the context, because all these terms and all these words have a very rich context, what they mean. And you need to make sure that everybody understands that. And then again, when you're, you know, when somebody is coming to you and, you know, if you buy into jobs to be done methodology and somebody says like, hey, we need this feature, it's like, that's great. What job is it solving, Jimmy? And, you know, tell me, is, is it actually the job that we're after right now? Is it aligned with what, what we're focusing? If yes, great, let's, you know, prioritize it. it might be a great solution, the idea that we haven't thought about it. If not, you can say, hey, that's interesting. It's not something that we're focused on right now. It's not aligned with our strategy. Let's keep listening. Let's keep monitoring and let's, let's see whether it is a pattern and maybe we adjust the strategy a bit. Maybe we uh, uncover the whole new opportunity that we didn't know about. So talk to me about what's coming up. Like, what do you see as upcoming trends in product management? We, we, we talked a little bit um, about, you know, chief product officers and kind of, you know, the, it, you see companies realizing that digital products are, obviously there's a whole class of companies that are like digital first, like companies like SaaS companies where the, the product is the digital, yeah. that's the core of the business, right? Product board, Pando's product, like our product is the software, the digital product, and, and that's the business. But companies are realizing that the digital channels and the digital products are critical for success, even for the traditional industries. And the, you know, Domino's Pizza, if you look at their stock, like they're growing like a tech stock. But you know, it's because they are they are really good at investing in the in the order pizza order experience and on the online experience, and they are very you know digital. They're 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 thinking about that, and so you see that the digitization, the companies that are kind of on the forefront, they realize that suddenly digital product management is not, you know, if, if you're a bank or if you're a fast food chain, they realize that it's a revenue generating opportunity. You know, that the app digital experience can be part of creating more business. And so the CIOs that are in, in you know, the traditional roles that have been focused more on the infrastructure and more on the making sure that, you know, the rest of the business operates efficiently. Now they're in the situation where they actually have the opportunity to create a product that contributes to the to the top line, right? And whether it's, you know, think about what uh, Dollar Shave Club did with the, the experience, how you order razors, and, you know, that's a traditional business, right? Like you buy razors and now the, the differentiator is the digital experience. So you can directly tie the dollars that you create to that. And so I, I, I see, you know, that in kind of like the grand scheme of what's happening in the product management. And, and as a result, more companies are appointing chief product officers, chief digital officers, and in the C-suite, because the importance and the impact on the success of the company is so big that, you know, historically the product managers would sit either in the marketing organization or in the engineering organization in the traditional companies. And... Uh, now, though, it's, you know, because of the importance, um, yeah, a whole new separate function, right, is created for them. And again, more because the product is a center. Yeah, let, let's hope that continues. I, I think that's a trend that 
Well, A, I'm kind of invested in product and product people, right? So from that standpoint, I'm a little biased. But I also think when you look at results, they perform better. So let's hope that's a trend that continues. So let's turn uh, the conversation a little bit more to you, to, to Hubert, right? What's your favorite product? Yeah, good question. I mean, I have... I just recently moved and I was, you know, looking for like a home automation thing. I really like Nest Thermostat and that system, how it works together. It's got its flaws. I like Apple products because I like the philosophy behind it. And, you know, it's not like for me, it's not like religious, you know, like I'm not like a crazy fanboy. It's not like they stand in the line, but I, I buy into the mindset and especially the, the aspect of delight. And it matters to me. I even like go probably farther than kind of like a typical product manager, like towards the art and you know architecture. And I, I just like great books that are well designed, and you take them in your hand, and it's just like you know you. I really like products, you know, on an abstract level where, when you use them, like you really feel that the people who created them cared deeply. And it shows, you know, you can't fake it, like, you know, knockoffs and just like, yeah, let's get something done quickly so that we hit revenue targets and, you know, so I always look for that. So it's, you know, it's much more on the brand side, right? Traditionally it's as well, because that's what, like, what it means to you, what's the meaning and the association with it. So, you know, like, you know, I, I don't know, like I, I bought this, like a door knocker in Chile and it's just like so beautifully designed and it has amazing function and you know I just have it and I, I just like love it it's, it's perfect right it's it's heavy it fulfills the function yeah. it's like delight yeah I mean details matter right the yeah. little things you know they, they give you the joy something well crafted well designed and still functional right yeah and the combination and, of those two I mean you can there's I'm sure we've all bought things that are beautiful and then you you look at their function and you're like it just doesn't work well and as beautiful as it is it's like yeah but yeah, a combination of those two things, the, the beautifully designed and fully functional is just, you know, an yeah. awesome product. Sometimes it goes against each other, right? Like that's, that's the hard part. How do you optimize? And then again, different people value different things, right? If you don't have like this need for emotional, delightful feelings and you just want to get things done, then yeah, you don't care. And that's okay, right? That's like that's why it's it's hard to say like, oh yeah, Apple's products are better than Google's products. Well, because it's you know, it's different audiences. And if you, if you don't care, you know, if if you need to get things done and you need more features, then like yeah, Android's probably a better system for you. Yeah, yeah, and and different people have like things that they aspects or items where functionality is important, and that's all that's important. Yeah. But that same person you know, could find that the joy is important in these other items in addition to the functionality. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I completely agree. It can yeah. it vary between people and even amongst a single person, depending upon what aspect you're talking about or what item or what experience. Yeah. So interesting. So one final question for you today, you know, three words to describe yourself. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I can tap into our company's values a little bit. We have, uh, curiosity creativity that's amongst them and I am like that and I you know I just always want to know why 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 my wife sometimes you know, drives her crazy it's like oh why do you want to do that but then I would also add active and you know I 
I want to live my life actively. Like, you know, either learn actively or contribute and, and create things. And so I strive for like not, you know, wasting time on things that, yeah, are not impactful, meaningful. Yeah, so I'm curious, creative, active. Now I noticed some of those were, were company attributes too. Did the, the company take on your attributes just by nature of being the founder? Of yeah, you kind of. It's see interesting it. to see, see how that you happens, see right? The DNA, right? But yeah. you know, and you and you hire people against these values, and obviously it evolves, but the core stays. You know, it's it's you define it. Some of it is kind of that you. It's kind of a soul searching exercise, right? Like you go and like you know you look at the first early team, the the, the few people, and it's not that you know from day one, like you know, you, you go and you have it formalized, but then you have the first, you know, five, ten people, and now you look around yourselves, like, what is it that we have in common? That's kind of like the underlying principles, values that that we want to, yeah, codify and make sure that, you know, we don't be off in the future hiring. And I think, you know, it's like we're a product management system, right? So it's kind of on this meta level, like, you know, product manager, product manager, and, and I think that just like curiosity and creativity is so core to being a great product manager because without being curious, you're not going to uncover the real needs. It's like, you know, yeah, you, you, you will, you know, you might do a customer interview and people tell you one thing, but like, you know, like they kind of fool you and not maybe intentionally, but you're just not going to, you know, you're not going to dig deep enough. Yeah. And if you're not creative, you're not going to come up with the better solution or superior solution. So you need to have both. Hmm. Well, this is awesome. Greatly appreciate your time. Likewise. Thanks for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>